From quantum physics to poetry, from neuroscience to geography, from philosophy to immersive realities, Building 21 is a space where one can explore, play with, manipulate, bend, break, and probe the multifaceted dimensions of ideas, knowledge, and thinking. Frederick Gilberts is Senior Lecturer in Ethics, Philosophy and Gender Studies at the University of Tasmania. As a researcher, he explores the ethics of novel, implantable brain-computer interfaces operated by artificial intelligence, and the effects of such interfaces on a person's sense of control, autonomy, agency and self, most specifically, when these technologies are used to treat dementia, epilepsy, severe depression, Parkinson's, etc. All right, so Professor Gilbert, uh, uh, we do it pretty much uh, the way you want to do it. It's to your taste. As I yes. told you, I think the email, what's most important for us is that we're just, we just love to meet interesting people. And <laughs> just to have our, you know, our, our, just, to have our, just to get excited by a really interesting topic. So the floor is yours. I think okay. what you told me is maybe a small presentation followed, followed yep. by question and answers. Yeah, uh, I will try to squeeze that in yeah, 15 minutes, 20. Uh, I tend to present um, quite quickly most of the time. And uh, uh, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to hear more about your research. The, the, the most, all of them sounds way more interesting than mine, actually. So looking forward to, to hear from them. So try to uh, get breathe through the ethics of implantable brain computer interfaces uh, and try to explore what could phenomenologically go wrong. Um, uh, just as a way to start, I would like to uh, break the ice by uh, talking about the mythology associated with implanting uh, electrodes or neural devices in a human uh, brain. And I will use this uh, episode from Goldorak. Perhaps most of you are too young to know Goldorak, but it was a famous uh, Japanese cartoon back in the 80s. And, you know, uh, the main protagonist, Aktarus, uh, left his beloved planet and uh, came here on, on Earth to defend our planet against the, the evil Vegas. And uh, one episode, the, the princess finally is able to reach the, uh, the planet Earth. And they, again, it's very romantic. They are in love. And suddenly, out of the blues, she tried to kill him with an iron bar for no obvious reason. And uh, obviously, the protagonist is saved. And the professor uh, then uh, scanned the brain of the princess. Oh, and then inform her that, well, you know, it's not your fault. You're not guilty. You're not responsible because from the beginning, you have been manipulated by Vegas. You were implanted with a brain computer interfaces. Uh, as such, uh, they have instigated, they have, uh, they were the inception of your action and decision as such, you're not responsible. And again, this, this is just a form of mythology because that was back in the, uh, first designed sometime in the seventies, right? And even it was portrayed through the comics, the media, but it's quite deep into our society, actually. And when we think about uh, brain-computer interface, we, we, we have often the uh, 
the two interpretation of the utopian planet where everybody would be implanted, enhanced, uh, more performance, stronger, more intelligent, and all the opposite, the dystopian perspective where everything would be worse, bad. Uh, we will have a various, various uh, negative outcome uh, from these uh, uh, neural devices. And, and even when you, you, you interview patients uh, about the fact that uh, they are implanted and what they are afraid of. And many of them actually uh, report that they have concern associated with being sort of uh, half human because they seem to feel like hybrids. They are self-fabricated by the technology, but they're still themselves. So it's, it's a concern for them. And they, they have also uh, fears that they might be distorted person. Uh, so... Um, we try to look into these these um, these um, intrusion uh, ex experiences by the users, um, and most of you uh, have a, a fair uh, understand what is brain brain computer interfaces. I'm happy I don't have to go through that, but it, it, there's different ways to define it. So uh, brain computer interface uh, uh, is the sort of umbrella under which. Can, we, we can find many different types of technologies, uh, such as closed-up devices, open loop, adaptive uh, uh, processes, uh, et cetera. So, but we will also predictive devices, advisory devices, and et cetera. But I will use brain-computer interface as a big umbrella. And for the purpose of uh, my presentation today, uh, because I wasn't sure of the audience, so uh, uh, simply uh, we'll define as a, a system or system capable of predicting uh, and identify, identifying specific neural patterns and provide uh, a, a specific response to it. So in no case, we'll, these will be a therapeutic responses. Uh, and so if we're back at this idea of mythology, uh, we, 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 and we try to ex we explore how BCIs are uh, portrayed and depicted in the media and the news media. We, we conducted a, uh, a study that we published back in 2019. We, we reviewed the entire ways that uh, media, news media are reporting uh, brain computer interfaces. We, we, we have observed a clear exponential uh, and increased uh, depiction of BCI and found out that uh, most of the time they are positively uh, portrayed, even with some enthusiastic uh, attitude. Uh, so that these numbers are almost 77% of the time when you read about brain computer interface, it is positive. Um, and au contraire, uh, and in contrast, you, you will find only about 2.7% of uh, discussion about in the media uh, about the ethics or, or the risk associated with it. Uh, also, there's also exaggeration about how BCI will enhance humans, uh, how also most of the 70% will talk about the future application rather than talk about what we, it's actually possible to do, et cetera. So I'm just going to skip these um, because I still want to talk uh, a lot. So the, the ethics of BI uh, is quite vast and uh, notion about inclusion, exclusion, how we can test that on some vulnerable patient, how can we articulate informed consent, the, the idea of obsolescence. We know that like smartphone, these devices cannot really last too long in, in terms of the technology that has to be updated. And so if you are implanted with a device that is has would expire in two years, does it make any sense? Uh, this idea about privacy, confidentiality, hacking, et cetera. But, but for the rest of the, the presentation, uh, I will try to focus on how the potential impact of BCI on personality, identity, agency, uh, autonomy, authenticity, and, and the self-aid, the AI, AAAS. 
So, um, and as a way to, to start, perhaps most of you knows, know this example. Uh, it's a famous case published in, in 99, was, she was one of the first uh, human implanted with uh, uh, deep brain stimulation which is an open loop system. Uh, and you can see the chronology uh, of the segment. So you can see the, the, the picture A, B, C, Ds. Uh, D, so that these picture are a segment of about 90 seconds. And uh, you can see that depending on how much she is stimulated, she passed from being depressed of being euphoric. And, and, the, and that was clearly in correlation with the stimulation because they repeat twice the experiment, but that was one of the first time that we saw that targeting specific area of the brain uh, could actually generate and induce a specific uh, outcome or behaviors or uh, emotion and feelings. And it's also a way some, some of these observations actually have opened the door to a the usage of the uh, open loop or currently closed loop in uh, treatment of psychiatric condition. And when you look at the narrative of that person, so you can see, she, I, I no longer wish to live, to see anything, hear anything, uh, feel anything. Uh, I'm fed up with life. I had enough. I don't want to live anymore, et cetera. So I'm discussed with life. And again, depending on how much it will, it will stimulate her, she, she will change her narrative and to the point that she starts to be fluffy with one of the researcher, et cetera. And she can recall the episode and these were not hallucination, et cetera. So it was a, a prominent article. So we, we also have spent time with patient uh, implanted with open loop device, so deep brain stimulation. So we published the, uh, these results in this, in this article here, uh, Miss Being Me, the phenomenological effects of deep brain stimulation. And we, we have observed that uh, there's different ways of patient not recognizing themselves anymore after stimulation. So what we call uh, self-estrangement, post-operative self-estrangement. So there are two ways of experiencing self-estrangements. Uh, the first one is a restorative one, which leads to some form of distortion. I will get to that in two minutes. But the first one is the uh, deteriorative estrangement, when someone seems to experience degrees of powerlessness, of loss of control, that are uh, have specific and common uh, qualitative characters. Um, so here's, if we look at the narrative of that patient, um, so she said, I can't be the real me anymore. I can't pretend. I feel like I am who I am now, but it's not the me that went into the surgery that time. My family say they grieve for the old me. They say they don't recognize me. Uh, and so they mentioned that she's becoming too impulsive, seems to change her mind all the time, et cetera. Um, and the other element of restorative self-estrangement, this, this patient, uh, uh, um, a morning was uh, stimulation was augmented and suddenly she, after the stimulation being augmented she decided that she wanted to see her husband knowing that would take her days to walk to see her husband because she wanted to walk uh again that was out of the blue uh and finally the, the neighbor stopped her and then she, she explained the, the episode because she recalled everything and she said that, oh god I wasn't me, I knew it, I wasn't me, and there was nothing I could do about it. Uh, I knew uh, what it was, I knew DBS had been turned up that day, unlike the drugs which creep you, uh, creep up on you, and you don't know what is happening with DBS, I knew what it was. And again, this is this sort of an interesting um, uh, transfer of responsibility where, 
the patient actually is blaming the device, although that they are uh, <laughs> still have to decide, act, move. And it's interesting how there's, there's this shift in accountability. And we have another um, uh, similar narrative, a, a lady her 60s, uh, after stimulation, uh, a sudden boost of energy, and she felt she was so young that she decided to, to lift the, the pool table, and then she ruptured her, uh, her disc, spent time in, in a wheelchair, actually, and then she said, I blame DBS for that because I felt so good. I did something that I couldn't have done when I was 21, and I don't know why I thought I could do it when I was 54, sorry, she was 54. Uh, I was in a wheelchair for two, for two months. And again, there's also a shift on accountability and, and blaming the device. Um, so now something a bit more, uh, which is sexy in a way, these predictive advisory device, BCI, uh, where we try to keep the patient in, in the loop. And these are, are interesting uh, because um, predictive uh, brain-computer interfaces um, are uh, proof of concept that we can anticipate uh, uh, behavioral outcomes. So you simply need to train an algorithm to identify specific patterns, brain pattern in order to uh, intercede or obstruct, uh, et cetera. So th there's already uh, you know, a substantial amount of evidence showing that uh, this could be used for uh, aggressiveness. For instance, if the device is trained to uh, detect uh, aggressive pattern in one's brain, then we could potentially use it in aggressive individual. Uh, same with addiction, uh, outbursts, uh, or sexual urges. Uh, Etc. So th there's there's a literature indicating that it, it's, it's uh, we might be going toward these uh, these area. I'm not I'm not I'm not I'm not endorsing it per se. I'm just uh, pointing that uh, these studies are underway. And uh, the the study that you have read in the New Yorker was, was this one. So a brain computer interface that has uh, where it was implanted. Uh, in the brain of a, a various patient trained to detect epilepsy, and the patient had to live with these devices. And so we, we were trying to understand the phenomenology of being implanted. Um, and we, we found, um, I see time is passing already. So uh, we found that on a, on a sort of a spectrum, uh, various uh, and, and I would say mesmerizing experience. On the one hand, you can, we've, we've found that there are radical distress experiences by some patient. Uh, again, this, this idea of deterioration, loss of control, powerlessness, and the opposite where there's sort of a, um, a symbiosis uh, or hybridization fusion with the device. And um, so uh, patient six is, is this lady that you've read about in the New Yorker. So, uh, uh, or narratives I felt like, then again, this is a, a clear drastic, uh, uh, um, uh, let me rephrase that. This is quite a, a rupture in her identity, but is a sort of restorative one to the point that she became one with the device in, in, her, in her own way. So it's a sort of empowerment or embodiment effect. Uh, so in her own words, so the BCI was like an alien at first, you grow gradually into it, get used to it. So it then become a part of every day, it become part of you because this is what it did. It was me, it became me with the device I found uh, myself. Um, so it changed that person, who that person was, then I found myself changing. So she gained confidence, uh, uh, this, uh, again, this thought, 
this, this is what a distortion their ability uh, and their ability and their, their capacities is quite common. We we often see that. Um, um, and the the other the, on the spectrum, as I mentioned, the the device again was again this wasn't a, a faulty uh, device or technology. It, it it did meet the therapeutic endpoint uh, simply that uh, the the patient um, did experience some psychological side effect uh, and to the point that she, she became uh, depressed. Uh, she experienced a distress. Uh, she, uh, you know, she felt a priority in implantation that she was a part-time epileptic patient, but with the device that she felt she became full-time and it was intrusive, invasive in her existence, uh, etc. So that, this is pretty uh, tragic, uh, actually, example, but uh, uh, it's probably not the last time we will uh, find these, um, uh, these results. Uh, so again, this again the side of loss of control, powerlessness, uh, and it's it's quite crucial to to uh, to uh, underline and highlight this. Um, so I have two conclusions, and then we can start talking. It would be more interesting for you. <laughs> uh, the so the first one, yeah, again, we we have observed some psychological side effects associated with the implantable brain computer interfaces. It's, it's quite complex, but what we can say that if there's a loss of control, uh, uh, that is necessarily, well, not necessarily, it's most of the time associated with feelings of powerlessness. Uh, and if the, if this uh, self-estrangement are associated with uh, um, gain of confidence, uh, of, uh, of uh, an increase uh, degrees of abilities, then it would be associated with distorted perception of capacities. Um, and the other point, um, so again, even if we have technologies that work perfectly well, uh, it will not necessarily guarantee that these will be beneficial for the implantees or the the user, yeah, I will stop at this point. And uh, in case we have uh, often uh, funding opportunity in neurotics here down under and um, University of Tasmania, Australia still have uh, their border closed, but uh, keep an eye or just email me if you're interested uh, in these projects. We, we are often uh, recruit. All right, thank you. Please, the floor is yours. Thank you so much, Frederic. Uh, exactly uh, what we had expected. Fascinating. So many, so many uh, questions. The last slide is pretty tempting uh, in Tasmania. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Joe. Uh, the floor is open. Uh, any, David? Do you have a first question? I'm yeah. sure you do. So, David, maybe, maybe. Like in, in several cases, um, maybe we're that camera anyway. It doesn't matter. Um, so in several cases, you detail that, that the patient's experience changes radical ruptures in the confidence level. And you, it's just the television. Screen, know. Right? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so my confidence level just went down. But is, that, is that due to like a kind of placebo effect based upon the mythology of having a brain implant? Or is it actually modulating something inside the neurochemistry or architecture, maybe PJ or you guys could just... Mm. Because I, I don't know. Like, I'm just yeah, it's, it's, uh, I guess I, 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 
Probably both, actually. So uh, as you, you have seen, it, it's possible to induce uh, different um, uh, emotion in, in, in a human. There's very, very various experiments showing that if, depending on how and where you stimulate, you can induce these behavioral outcomes. So yeah, it's probably potentially somewhere in the brain that you can stimulate it. But also the reality is that um, with some pathologies such as Parkinson's disease, dystonia, epilepsy, um, you, you have to conceive that someone is chronically, chronically, chronically um, uh, debilitated to the point that they often, the quality of life is pretty low. So when they are implanted, they uh, finally have some freedom or capacities, or they can regain some uh, autonomy that they had previously. So with that uh, opportunity actually boosts their confidence. So <clears throat> The patient six, for instance, had epilepsy for more than 40 years and a chronic epilepsy. So she couldn't walk by herself on, on the street or drive or even having showers was complex for her. And suddenly with that device, the moment she was implanted, she finally was able to have a, a, a regular existence, uh, not relying on any other person. Uh, this device was enough. So that in itself was enough to boost her confidence and, and, and give this distort perception of I can do anything uh, and yeah and the, the the ethical ambiguity here is that these devices uh, may also uh, learn learn patient into believing that they are into a safe place or and that such increase the probability that they may put themselves at risk uh, and we we, uh, we also have seen that with different types of technologies where we become so uh, self-dependent on the technology that we forget that we are still vulnerable. And as soon as the technology uh, has a dysfunction, then we, we, we sort of um, are experiencing the outcome of not, uh, or, 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 or it's, it's to the point that we might become addicted to or over-reliant on the technology that once it doesn't work, then the vulnerabilities uh, are, are back or are, are increasing or inflated. Does, does it answer your question? Yes, yes, it did. Yeah, yeah. So you're actually stipulating that it's like a third category that that it's because people have been so chronically paralyzed or held or constrained that being given that freedom, they suddenly open into it. And your research yeah. also touches on to more pernicious aspects like the military. I saw a few research papers on DARPA-funded research. Have you is there any available? material that sort of ties in with this phenomenological yeah. effect work? Yeah, so at the moment, uh, the so I, I was invited to, to work with some of their teams uh, on the potential effect of uh, AI on military personnel, uh, uh, specifically via BCI. So because the purpose of DARPA, for instance, is to enhance uh, the capacities of their personnel, on field, uh, so the and we know that DAPA are quite serious. <laughs> they obviously they, they, they at the uh, creation of many uh, essential elements such as the internet. So uh, we know that uh, they they they're very serious. So they they, they have been uh, um, uh, innovating the field. So we have seen many patient. Um, paralyzed uh, patient actually being able to move prosthetic limbs. Uh, uh, and and he uh, the the idea is that they, they try to develop uh, um, 
devices that are not necessarily uh, physically connected. So it can be just wearable, a hat that will read your brain and then you will be able to activate a drone or a prosthetic limb or they also have established that you, you can uh, uh, with bi-directional devices. So you, if you are implanted, you can actually move a prosthetic limb, but also if you, uh, you know, uh, you, you close your eyes or, or if you are in Montreal and I'm here in Tasmania, and I could actually articulate the prosthetic limb in Montreal without seeing it, but I could feel it. So they have shown that it's possible to touch the artificial limb and the patient implant and know exactly which finger have been touched. Uh, and now it's crucial because they realize it's better for the control when the patient actually have uh, this, this lead actually. So you, you and, and with that, we've come the, the many, um, most likely, uh, uh, or unfortunately, uh, uh, side, psychological side effect. I'm, I'm pretty sure about this as a, because it will associate, well, I should not conclude that, but it will probably open the door to um, ownership. There's this question of uh, where the body stop. I think all of us as human uh, know the, uh, the border or the frontier of four bodies, it's quite important to define yourself as a, as a self, as an identity, but when you can plug yourself to a computer and you can activate a device, which is uh, 15 hours away by plane from you, uh, and this probably uh, will be element that people will be related. And this idea of ownership is quite crucial. And it's something what we have uh, also observed with um, the, the BCI where when, when the the person fuse and, and, and become symbiose with the device. It's quite of a trauma to be explanted. And uh, patients have thought of that actually, that first symbiosis, uh, the harm induced by explantation could be as, as bad actually as uh, the, the disease itself actually. Sorry, I'm talking too much. <laughs> well, that's, that's fascinating. Uh, uh, Frédéric, could you could you turn off your uh, screen sharing so we can see you a bit uh, maybe better? Oh yeah, sure. My apologies. Yeah. That's okay. So I have a I have a thousands of questions, but who else want to ask a question? Anyone? Anyone uh, online? Uh, yeah, I have, I have a question if, if that's possible. Um, like Olivia, I have a, a thousand, right? But I, I guess I would I would want to ask a sort of. Um, general one which is i'm i'm curious because in your presentation you gave us a lot of well i mean kind of remarkable a case sometimes even a little bit disturbing like as to like how far the technology is actually has gone and how, how rapidly it's developing but i i wonder what it is that you think makes um this type of neurotechnology um a sui generis ethical problem right like if if we examine other forms of technology it's quite possible to integrate them into pre-existing ethical issues. You know, we can examine them by like just the consequences they have on basic metrics of well-being, pleasure, et cetera. Right. Um, or we can, you know, denounce them by, you know, whether or not they violate what we assume to be humanistic principles and, and so on. Right. But um, it, it seems to be the case. And, and at least it seems from your presentation that, that you're leaning this way. And I'm sympathetic to this, but it seems that neurotechnology actually presents um, a, a moral problem that can't be integrated into the way in which we treat other technological ethical issues, right? That, that there, there's, some, there's something unique to it. Um, and, you know, my intuition is that it, it has something to do with the fact that um, it poses this uh, transhumanist problem, i.e., like, 
what's morally problematic about it is that it um, makes it difficult to ground a humanism in any particular entity, precisely because it's in the process of modifying it, right? As it might be harming it or helping it, right? Um, but I'd just be curious, like, uh, on, just on your perspective, like, what what is this salient link between ethics, neurotechnology that can't be reduced into the general ethical treatment of, of, of innovation and so on. Yeah. Uh, well, that's a tough question. <laughs> um, well, I think with uh, artificially intelligent uh, neural devices, we are seeing unprecedented uh, capacities to uh, predict the self, predict agency, uh, predict uh, authenticities. Um, it's something that you cannot uh, uh, compare, which is unparalleled. Um, where you, I mean, people have talked about the revolution of the DNA, uh, but obviously genes are quite important for us, but not as deep as, as a, a brain or your brain. And But we reached a point where... Uh, uh, you know this this uh, Socrates uh, adage where uh, know know yourself is actually uh, will be invalid uh, because the the device will know you better by the way it's predict you via different parameters and I think this is quite unique and again uh, I'm seeing unprecedented um, so and again we have started to observe these with. Um, device capable of predicting epilepsy. And, 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 and where the concern is for me is that patients stop listening to their own biology and start uh, being dependent and over-reliant on the, the prediction. And again, these are just prediction. Doesn't mean it will happen, but it, they reach the point where they, they stop, uh, again, referring to their phenomenological uh, entities. Um, and uh, this is great because it, it, it in a way, uh, provide more control on the biology, but at the same time, it's actually, well, you give control to patient on their biology, but at the same time, it actually increases the control on the patient itself, right? So it's a sort of paradox. And I think there it's, it's quite, um, quite novel and, and new and, uh, oh, per, per, perhaps someone could say, uh, we have seen that with something else, but, uh, yeah, but it's, yeah, I, I wouldn't say that. Uh, is, is it, yeah, is it, does it make sense? <laughs> yeah, no, thank you. That's, um, yeah, that's, that, that, that's helpful. Do we, uh, do we maybe want to read uh, uh, Day's uh, uh, chat? She's saying, uh, because I think, so don't you don't you want to read it, Dave? You may have might be able to summarize it shorter than what I wrote. Um, my biggest question is based on the fact that patient 06 identified BCI as a part of her. Like it wasn't kind of a separated separate technology that malfunctioned or changed this person. It became a part of them. So I'm wondering if there has been any psychological studies that have looked at patients like first perspective of the technology, like how they wanted to approach it and correlate it to how they felt at the end. Was there any studies that looked at that? Um, no, we, we were the first one with these devices, smart devices, and I think that work need to be done. So if you have any uh, <laughs> will to do it, uh, you, you should do it. Uh, 
Yeah, so no, it's it's quite important because as you said, it's she she certainly expressed a narrative that uh, indicate a, a, a symbiosis. So symbiosis, uh, it's a bit more than just a hybridization. Symbiosis means that both entity gain benefit out of the relationship. So in 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 her, for instance, she gained autonomy. She 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 gained a. a from degrees of agencies and the the the, the algorithm itself were, uh, had benefit because it was actually so accurate that it kept increasing its degree of autonomy because the thing artificially intelligent uh, devices they, they will increase and perform more autonomously by their performance more successful they are more they become more autonomous and as such the, the patient will become more reliant on that autonomy of decision autonomy so this symbiosis is quite um one of the first one described in the literature, but also it's indicated that it's more than the device. Uh, for the company, it was just a piece that was in the brain of a patient, but the patient actually became herself with the device, right? And when she was explanted, uh, she felt actually, uh, she did experience a trauma. She, she's still actually uh, very harmed uh, by this explantation. She was forced to be explanted. She refused, resisted. And here you can draw a parallel with uh, the you know, Blade Runner when you, you have these uh, replicants suddenly realize that, uh, well, we are entity, we, we have uh, feelings. Why do you want to stop us, for instance? Because once one of few of them did a few things, bad things, but here she actually resisted, refused. Was a, you know, her husband wanted to take another mortgage on the house to buy the implant that she could keep. Uh, and uh, yeah, so it's, it's a sort of a, again, another tra tragedy. Uh, it won't be the last one, uh, but yeah, so this is quite brand new, actually, this idea that uh, it, it's it's more than just some pieces of silicone uh, and some hairy uh, in the brain. It's actually a new person that emerged out of it, and this question about neural rights, do we own any uh, protection uh, to that new person that is created out of this interaction? Uh, should, should it be protected? Can we force someone to be explanted? We know that we have a lot of law protecting patient to be implanted and you cannot force anyone to be, get something in, in their head but doesn't mean that if you agree to get something in your head you still agree to get it out of your head so when you sign yes i agree to get it in my head it wasn't clearly articulated in the informed consent that she, she could de facto say yes to be explanted and at this point uh who, who actually has to run after these uh uh individual that refused to be explanted. That's why I'm back to this metaphor of the Blade Runner, actually. You're not gonna call the police or the neurosurgeon is not gonna take his car driving. <laughs> so it's, these, these are novelty. Uh, and it's interesting how the science fiction literature uh, actually is catching up. We're catching up with it actually, yeah. But again, if, if, if you have interest in that type of research, you, you, uh, I strongly encourage you to, to do it. Amazing talk, thank you. Frederick, oh, have, go ahead, Anita. Do you have another question? Yeah, yeah, but it's fine. <laughs> you, you go ahead. You see here. Uh, so, so. <laughs> so this is not an ethics question, but it was the thing that's, I, I only read the New Yorker article. And the thing that struck me was the patient who thought that the BCI became a part of her. And she said, you know, now we together are, are one human. After it was taken out, suddenly she could predict her own epileptic seizures. And so I wondered if it gave her an awareness of listening to her body's signals 
and what kind of research is being done. Like just a positive of how it can actually train somebody to, okay, this is something to identify because before that, I think she was just having seizures. She didn't know when, so yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the, so patients, so actually we have another case that we published in one of the, yeah, well, that's all. Yeah, another paper that I didn't point out. Yeah, so some patient with epilepsy have got what we call the aura. So it's a sort of a feeling that it, it, it is about to happen, but it's only a tiny fraction of them experiencing that. And, and one of the cases uh, that we have encountered, uh, this uh, man uh, realized, thanks to the device, that every time that he had flash of Kermit the frog, you know, Kermit the frog, that was uh, the inception of an epileptic seizure. So he didn't know prior being implanted. The device made him realize that he was receiving the signal after seeing the flash of carrying the flag like that. And that's, oh, that's a signal that I'm about. That the, the device taught that. And in the case of patient six, actually, the, what hasn't been pointed is that she uh, actually uh, taking a, a little bit too much of medication now. So she, she a bit anxious. So everything that she feels that she might have, she take the medication. So the, the good outcome is that she have, they have found the right medication to stop the seizure, but the likelihood is that she is taking too much of this medication because we're not sure if these signals actually are uh, correlated. But, but yeah, these the benefits. And also, uh, this is a, a long story, but uh, epileptic patients at, are at the front line of innovative surgery. So if you look at the history of, of uh, brain surgery, from trepidation until the latest one, uh, epilepsy. Epilepsy has always been targeted. So from trepidation, you know, with a rock in the brain back in the uh, 2000 years ago, it was on epileptic patient. But nowadays, so my, 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 what I'm trying to say is that these patients often are facing ablative surgery. So they have reached a point where they're gonna chop a part of the brain. And instead of having this, they are agreed to enroll in these um, experimental trials and then the good thing is that yeah they, sometimes we can find the elements so yeah often it's better to take more drug than having part of your brain um, chopped away yeah well, my question to you uh, Frederick, follows up a bit on everyone's question is um you get these uh, these things these devices implanted in your brain and and of course, I, I'm no scientist, but uh, from a little bit I know of it, is that you would expect it would affect, uh, I don't know, language, vision, all of these things. And it seems not to do this, only to affect the whole person. It, I find this quite bizarre in a way. Yes. So as you know, the, the brain has uh, some uh, specialty, you know, temporal places you can stimulate one place and your left arm will, will move or fingers. So yeah, it's very, very uh, important to not miss the spot. <laughs> uh, and, and, and also there's cases of you try to target the epilepsy or the, the Parkinson's symptom and suddenly their memories enhanced. Uh, you have a case like Canada was uh, with Lozano back in Toronto. They, they, were, they were testing a DBS uh, on an obese patient. Uh, and they realized, oh, actually, their memory is quite better. So let's test that now on an Alzheimer patient, for instance. Yeah, so it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's quite uh, interesting of where you, you're implanting. But 
it's it's also a fact that um, uh, I forget when the person mentioned optogenetics uh, prior. Um, yeah, so with with electricity, it's, it's electricity is a sort of a sort of pollute, if I may say so, uh, the brain because it, it would go across different neural tissues. So instead of a targeting specific neurons that do something good or bad, uh, we're going across different tissues as such as polluting. So with optogenetics, uh, the, the gentleman mentioned optogenetics prior, so you, you could potentially use light. It's way more accurate because you can pinpoint which neuron you want to affect. Uh, and and uh, so we actually, again, there's, there's uh, more research doing in that way. So yeah, to answer your question, we have to be careful because depending on the technology, you might be interfering with other paths uh, in, in the brain. And as such, it might have um, strong consequences on the personality, the agency, or the identity. And, and last thing I would say about this is that with Parkinson's disease, uh, often it's not clear if it, it, the, the, person, the personality changes is not due to the disease itself, actually. So we know that with or without the device, uh, up to 40% of people with Parkinson would actually start to suffer from psychiatric side effect of the, because of the disease. So the electrode might just simply increase the propension or uh, it might have mask it for a while, et cetera, yeah. Other questions online, maybe? I have, I think Olive has a question too, and Salome has a question. So let's try online. Let's go Salome, Igu, and Olive. Your turn, Salome. Hello, um, thank you for a wonderful, very interesting. Um, Lecture. I just had a small, maybe technical question. Um, is there a future for the use of ULC contracts in this? Um, in this, I mean, um, with the emergence of these new forms of technology, um, I think previously we were talking a little bit about, um, you know, if people change their minds or if there's a reason for something to be explanted. I know that ULC contracts are sometimes utilized um, in medical settings. Um, and I've been doing some research with Professor Daniel Wick um, Wickler, um, yep. and we, there's, there's it's, it's, I mean, I find it personally to be a fascinating uh, subject, the, the idea of um, self-made contracts, um, self-made, and then you, you can have them be enforced, but I was just wondering if that was at all pertinent or if there was um, space for it in the future. Anyway, yes. Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah, yes, it is. Also, uh, Jennifer Chandler uh, in Ottawa, actually, I've been working. Sorry, uh, sorry to interrupt, Philippe. Really. Could you tell us what is a self-made contract? Oh, there could be some degrees of uh, self-advanced directive. So uh, if you, for instance, uh, you, if you get a treatment or a, a pathology, uh, then you, you, in, you, you basically sign a contract with yourself in the future, telling you or your, your surrogate what to do if this happened, this scenario happened. So, and here with implantable technologies, if you are to suffer personality change and you're quite happy about it, it doesn't mean that the, the old person is, did agree for that, for instance. But so the, the question is whether, who matters the most? It's the, is it the person signing or is that the future, the person of the future? And uh, I, I think this is quite legally ambiguous. Uh, my, my, my modest inclination would be to also uh, consult with families because there have been a few cases of Parkinson patient being stimulated 
becoming hypomaniac or hypersexual and being very happy about it, but not necessarily the partner and, and, and families. And uh, there's a case in, in the Netherlands, uh, uh, classic case in law now where the, the patient the person actually decided to finish his day in a psychiatric ER and uh, but without the uh, the symptom than the opposite so it, it had a stimulation or uh, okay or you had so long story short yeah there's, there's a big 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 uh, line here uh, and yes so it, it makes great sense and again my, my, my mother's intuition is that we, the person of the future uh, should actually prevail uh, uh, yeah, because the, the consent is given not for the immediate, but rather for the future. But again, I, I'm happy to, <laughs> to be refuted here. Yeah, but yeah, thanks. That was an interesting question. Thanks. Wow, that was so interesting. Uh, Igor, your turn. Yeah. Hi, Professor So I was just thinking, um, because I guess with the epileptic device, uh, we're implanting it in the focus of the epilepsy to recalibrate um, like the hyper excitability in the brain. So like to, to have it at the normal, normal level per um, like the normal population standards. But the fact that the personality of the person changes before and after, it suggests maybe that personality comes from other places than, you know, the epileptic focus. So what the person experienced as self before the implant, like it feels like it has a lot to do with what's coming from the epilepsy. Yeah, yeah, clearly. Yeah, so identity uh, of many of these patients actually is, is uh, uh, built up with the pathology itself. They, they can't see themselves uh, non being epileptic. And actually we, we have found that was the same with Parkinson's. Most Parkinson patients that didn't accept their disease were more most likely to experience post-operative uh, personality changes. Actually, all of, in, in our study, all the patients that, that did accept Parkinson's disease as being part of their life were all finding they didn't have any disturbance. After. But also for for, for epilepsy, with the focus is, is the focus of the activity. Uh, uh, it's not necessarily correlate with the place of the personality uh, or it's often has to do with the integration of the technology within their existence. This is how it become fusional or, uh, or symbiotic. Uh, and technology, depend, again, depending which technology we're talking about, if we think the most common type now is NeuroPace. It's an American company where the a trainer device, a closer device to uh, target the, the act the epileptic center and to actually disrupt it by sending electricity. So simply, sorry, simply try to, to uh, rupture that, 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 uh, that pattern actually, so how it work. Uh, and then you, you have the double effect where you, you have the epileptic uh, uh, side effects of, of suffering from it, but also the stimulation. So the, uh, we, we have interviewed a few, few patients, but haven't published yet anything about it. But it's quite interesting because they, they might be receiving too much stimulation, for instance. For anyway, but yeah, it's, sorry if I said I'm talking too too much now. But yeah, if I said, yeah yes, uh, it, it, it is uh, quite quite interesting actually. Yeah, did I answer your question? Sorry, I, I felt yeah that many many questions. And... Yeah, but as a follow up, I think, but at baseline level, in a normal person. Um, their personality can change too. And 
Like, I'm just wondering at normal level of neural activity versus at um, the, the kind of pattern of neural activity, I guess, in epilepsy, it just feels like the substrate for personality is totally elsewhere. And BCI probably had less to do than we think. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. No, you're right. There. Yes, we, we actually, in our paper, we, we, we are always underline the fact that uh, there's no direct cause between a BCI stimulation and personality changes. It's an amalgam of different parameters that can lead potentially to that outcome. These are the putative phenomenon, right? Uh, yeah, so uh, um, yeah, yeah, no, clearly, yes. Yeah, thanks for the precision, yes. Yes, but then I'm just wondering what's happening to the lady who tried to lift a pool table. <laughs> <laughs> just spent three months in a wheelchair. Uh, I haven't spoken with her for a while, but uh, yeah, no, she, she was happy with the, the stimulation. It's simply, again, it's, it's common. It's a distorted, uh, which oh, I cannot say psychiatric, it's a psychological side effect of being uh, restored actually, and then we 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 see that not only with Parkinson but across uh, different pathologies. Yes, um, and in some to some degree, we 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 are similar with our smart devices. We suddenly feel so intelligent because we can Google something, but we're just depending on a, a machine. So if we there's no more battery or electricity, suddenly you 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 are, yeah. I don't have a mobile phone. I'm one of the rare human beings on the planet not having a mobile phone. I still resist. It's more and more difficult to be a human being without a mobile phone. I, soon I won't start my own YouTube channel about how to survive without a mobile phone. But yeah, this, this is this uh, reality of uh, we were not more intelligent. We're just more dependent on the technology. Similar with BCI. Sorry, now I'm, I'm a digression. Thank you. Lifting a pool tip, thinking you can lift a pool table feels mm -hmm. like my dreams. Um, <laughs> Olive, did they, did I, did you have a question? Because I saw you turn on your microphone. Olive? Oh, no. I think it's just like the accident. Okay. Damien, you do have a question. I, I do. Just a, just a follow-up to um, Amiga's intervention, which I thought was, was really useful. Um, the, the, the interchange that you guys just had. I, I, I guess my question is, is how you would go about determining like the ideology of, of, of the production of, of selflessness or like lack of executive control after like the implantation of, of the device. Um, because like uh, we can make this a strong distinction between, you know, like people after suffering all sorts of different events, you know, um, you know, traumatic events are commonly like in, in a psychiatric context, like you can produce senses of loss of control, senses of selflessness um, that are basically psychological reactions to, to in, you know, interactions with their environment effectively. Um, on the other hand, it's possible to produce uh, feelings of selflessness or, or, uh, or a loss of control uh, by actually directly intervening in the um, cognition that's, or the type of inference that produces that phenomenology, right? So if we ingest like certain, you know, psychedelic chemicals and so on, um, you'll immediately lose, you know, a sense of self. Um, and this is a, an entirely different mechanism than, than say the trauma response, because it's, um, it's just interrupting the type of cognition that enables it to occur, right? So I, I guess I would just wonder like, when, when you're implanting these sort of devices into, into people's brains, 
like how you would go about differentiating between these varieties of effects? Um, uh, yeah, so this question uh, has to be linked with the type of technology that you are implanting, because some technologies are uh, what we call passive, they are reactive. Uh, the, the, the other category is uh, uh, passive, reactive, active. Uh, and they generate different outcome and they play different role in, in the brain. So the, 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 the one that I presented today were, were uh, uh, reactive one uh, um, uh, and active and passive. So the passive will not necessarily uh, be interfering with the brain activity itself. It could, but, but this is where you, you, you mentioned where we touch your point of the environment being part of how one uh, elaborate or build their personality or identity or uh, agency. Uh, but the, 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 what the concern is that these elements are not taking into account within clinical trials. So the, the company that ran this, this, this clinical trial, actually that company bankrupt, but at and any given point, they never thought that actually it could lead to these this sort of phenomenology uh, due to the, the interaction. Uh, yeah, so uh, um, we, I think we, we need more studies to look into these um, parameters. This is, this is quite, uh, quite important actually. And, and again, I'm repeating myself, but even the most expensive and successful uh, brain device will not necessarily lead to the best wealth, uh, well-being or quality of life for, for an implant or a user, for instance, yeah. Yeah, and, and maybe it's for the best, but I imagine that, um, you know, it, it, it's extremely limited the degree to which we can run experiments on these types of things, right? Yep. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, it's, it's also depending on the court of population, uh, some of uh, some epileptic patients are actually uh, are so severely um, affected that sometimes they don't have a proper um, uh, trajectory in a sense that they don't have the, a proper uh, way to access society or education. So some of them it's more difficult to express uh, their narrative compared to others. And, and even, uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm just dis describing the, the, the diversity of the courts. And even if we try to come with a general principle, it would probably, probably need to uh, break it down through court rather than coming with all population, all diseases, and all devices. Right. Yeah. So it's been almost an hour. Do we have more questions from people? Uh, from people, what is it about Zoom and eating? This thing about <laughs> Zoom and eating is something. Whenever I have a class or Zoom, somebody's at least one or two people are eating. Something with technology. Maybe it's the you know maybe it's the technology that's affecting our brain makes us hungry all the time. Anyone? Any question? Uh, April, Sharish, uh, PJ, Jenny. Any questions? No. Okay. So, yeah. Sorry. PJ, is that PJ? No. No. So, uh, uh, Frederic, we, we like to we like to sort of. Uh, We'd like to sort of uh, have one sort of last question. Uh, but it's we, we want to do it. Do you have a question? Okay. Well, okay. So we have two last questions. <laughs> uh, the first one would be I'll, I'll give you the two uh, right away. 
The first one is one we ask every student at Building 21 when they apply to Building 21 is what what do you seek? And the second one is a, is a, is more a, you know a projection is the idea of we're now in 2070 so 50 years from now the world is a bit of a better place than it is today. It's not perfect but it's better than it is today. And in your research area the question is what did we do right? How did we use these neurotechnologies in a positive way. So there we go. All right, so we'll start with the second question. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I forgot, I wanted to point at it during my presentation. So what we did right uh, was that we, we, we kept the uh, patient in the decisional loop. Uh, so the uh, user uh, had the ultimate power and control uh, all the time, they were able to uh, get out of the uh, uh, yeah of, of the loop actually, and this is central to uh, and phase on the locus of control and 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 uh, re and, and and user re has to retain control on on the technology uh, at any given point. Uh, and I know it's a very tricky one because it's very invisible and, and, and invasive as well. And uh, we, we can actually feel it uh, uh, via or usage of the computer. So if it is something implanted, it will be even more invisible. And it, but so we, we have to make all the necessary steps to 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 um, protect and guarantee that the user have the ultimate control on their usage. And uh, what do I see? Um, I want to be sure that user and um, those who are at the front line of these experimental invasive brain technologies have a voice uh, that their uh, uh, that their effort and sacrifice to be into this clinical trial actually uh, resonate, and we actually have to listen to them. And these experiences have to guide all policies and the ways that we are uh, building framework to uh, again uh, ensure that we have safe and effective usage of these technology in the future. Yeah. No, thank you so much, Frederic. That was that was great. Any last thoughts? I'm sorry. You said what he said. He said uh, the patient's voice, right? Uh, yes. I have a final. Comment. <laughs> oh, Igor has a final, final <laughs> comment slash question slash. This was amazing. Comment. Yeah, no, it's just like. Uh, we've been talking about implants, so invasive um, BCIs the whole time. What do you think about non-invasive ones? Because that's what, like, my my I'm working on with with a team, so we're trying mm. to build a software. And so yep. it feels a lot like the softwares that are already designed and built on the market, and then that people are using to the better of uh, to the better or to to the worst of their like mental health. Um, yeah. So, what do you feel about non-invasive technologies? Yeah. So, the 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 subtlety or the market narrative or rhetoric of uh, being non-invasive is that yeah they are not physically penetrating some tissue, but them, as a matter of fact, they are invasive. <laughs> so, it's not because you wear them that they cannot uh, actually access some private area of your brain and extract data and classify that data according to some bias, etc. So. I'm not sure if, uh, <laughs> who are your colleagues. Perhaps you're working for a gaming company or software that will be used for different reasons. But yeah, so it, it's an illusion to believe that because you wear something uh, and it does not 
physically intrude in some neural tissue that it's not invasive. I can, it, this is a, it's just a rhetorical point. Uh, but at the moment, uh, as, as you know, uh, these uh, non-invasive technologies uh, are less effective. We still have to get as close as possible to the, the, the substract. And even here, down here in Australia, there's a stentrome. Uh, perhaps you heard about it. There's this stent that you get through the vein and you get deep in the brain. So instead of uh, damaging the neural tissue by uh, um, um, you know, digging or drilling the, 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 the skull for the, the neural tissue, so there's no scalp tissue. So it's, it's another way to get. Uh, so it's still an invasive, but it's less invasive. Uh, yeah, but yeah, the the, the subtlety of being non-invasive is it's quite uh, interesting, actually. Yes. Thanks for asking this one. <laughs> so like sending an email would be getting trapped into the BCI loop. <laughs> yes, yeah, because there's more and more uh, work being done with reading the brain, reading the mind. Uh, and again, it's, it's not, again, it's, it's the adjunction of these other parameters and the combination of these parameters that lead to the prediction. So if, you, if your brain activity is equal this, and if it is in conjunction with your location, physical location, what you have eating in the day, uh, uh, your, your past uh, X, Y, Z, and all these elements which are invisible, uh, non-invasive, will at some point be the best way to predict your activity and your behavior, for instance. I see, okay. That's why we might need more rights there. Yeah, yeah, not a clear definition. <laughs> exactly. You're so you're not out of the loop, uh, Igu. You're part of the you're part of the ethical part. conundrum. We're all in the matrix. Yeah, yes. as long as you're not in the matrix, I think we're good. <laughs> okay, Frederic, thank you so much. If you come to Quebec, uh, please send us an email. We'd be yes. really happy to welcome you to Building 21, show you around, get you to meet with the students. Um, it'd be a great pleasure, and I hope we'll be able to speak to each other again and also collaborate. We have a lot of students who are interested in these questions for Eric, so. Yeah, please, uh, yeah, just, just contact me. I'm always looking forward to get more collaboration. Yes, 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 be great. Okay. Yes. And again, we have PhD opportunities if some of you are interested. Okay, great. Thank you so much. And thank you for taking the time to speak to us for, from uh, so far away and too early in the morning for you. Thank you so thank much. You. All right, take it easy. Bye-bye. Bye everyone, thank you. Bye-bye, merci. Au revoir. Merci.